You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, featuring exclusive audio from Catalyst, the official singles conference of the Los Angeles International Church of Christ Singles Ministry. I assume we all had a good time last night. We definitely should have because half of you were still asleep. But uh, definitely grateful for uh, you guys coming out this morning. Um, again, my name is uh, Dink Toller. I'm part of the Turning Point Ministry. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited. I'm always grateful and honored to have this opportunity just to be able to share some of the passions uh, that God has, has helped um, convict me with and to really just uh, to kind of really be able to have just a great thirst and quench for the scriptures and a desire just to be able to know God in a deeper and a more intimate way. And with uh, just really what you're going to, as you hear everyone talking all weekend about just connecting and refreshing with God, um, for me, it's really uh, one of the ways for me to do that is to really go back and look at the culture, the history, the archaeology of the Bible to kind of help put things in context. For me, it's really important in, in, in who I am. You know, I am from a Jewish background. Um, I was baptized in the Orange County region originally back in March of 97, um, the old, old Ir- Irvine sector back in the day. Never remembered which hotel I was supposed to be at for Sunday service from week to week because there was about five of them we rotated amongst. Um, but it, it's been a great journey. And growing up, um, my brother's a Messianic rabbi. Um, my dad's a teacher of law. My mom teaches ancient Hebrew. Um, they're all much smarter than I am. Um, but growing up in that environment and growing up around that, going to grow up with just a great appreciation for the Bible and for the scriptures and for God's word. And um, one of the things that's really important to me is a lot of people sit there, we can think we've read a scripture a million times, and we can kind of fall into ruts, and we might hear someone make a really good point at, in a Bible study, and then we'll use it in our Bible study. But do we ever go back and really study it out and understand where it came from and, and kind of how things came about? And we can sit there and go, well, you know, it's great. I got the scripture. I got the first principle studies. I got a lot going on in my life. I'm good to go. Thanks, bro. But time to go. And uh, But what ends up happening is, how would that work and look like if you were in a regular, if you were in a relationship, in a dating relationship or a married relationship? You can start to look at, and you'll see some of the things today that we do that aren't necessarily, that they're not sin or wrong or whatnot, but do they help, do they prevent us from knowing God better? Are there things that we can do to know the living God? You know, as we're going to look at in a little bit, you know, Jesus' name is Yeshua in Hebrew. What if you called your girlfriend or your boyfriend by a different name every day? How would they feel? It's not, you know, um, we, we do it. We don't mean to be most, most of us don't even know where it came from. I, growing up in America, I myself didn't know what his name was for, you know, a long time. So there's a lot of just different cultural things like that and things that can help us identify. One of my favorite stories to show you how a little bit of knowledge can get really taken out of context and go the wrong way is a famous speech given by John F. Kennedy in Berlin. He gave this speech at the Berlin Wall, and he gets up there very famously, and he says, Ich bin ein Berliner. He thought he was saying, I am one of you, I am from Berlin. The crowd cheers, half the crowd's laughing, people don't realize what's going on. He used that word, Ein, is a particular article that gets put in the word. Instead of making that, I am from Berlin, he said, I am a jelly donut. So oftentimes, the smallest of little details can completely change the context of what we're looking at. 
We mentioned last night we did, um, we talked about, I, I asked the question about the three wise men and the manger. And, you know, um, obviously we know that there were, you know, the one, they were more magi necessarily than wise men. We don't know how many they were. They could have taken up two years to get there. There's a whole story. But that nativity picture is really plastered into our mind. Was there a cow? Was there a, was there a straw little dome, domicile that he was born in? What would it really look like? What was it really there? And from that picture, we've taken a lot of things, that picture that was, that was presented by, by, it was created by a pope just to kind of collectively, his idea was, let me take the collective thing and help give you a picture that you can relate to in your mind of the birth. It was meant in its time to be representative. But over time, we, we kind of sometimes in our subconscious start to take it, oh, that must have been what it was like. A manger would have been made out of wood. A manger would have, because that's what we associate stuff with. If I, we have a feeding trough, we have these different things, that's what it would be. So therefore, when we knew in Hebrew, and we know Jesus was a carpenter, right? Well, there wasn't any forest in Israel. There's a lot of stone. The same word in Hebrew for carpenter is also the same word for stonemason. Nazareth is famous for its stone. The stone quarries to this day are still going on. So a manger actually looks like that. So it's made out of stone. This one in particular uh, is from Armageddon or uh, the Hebrew city Megiddo, uh, Tel Megiddo. And so this is uh, in the middle of the country where this particular one's from, but you, and not far from Nazareth actually at all. And you would find the, this is what it is throughout the rest of the country, the homes built out of stone, the, just everything, stone, 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 stone. So a lot of times we can have these perceptions, and they're, they're small little things. It's not necessarily a big thing. It's not something that, that's going to change our, it's going to rattle our faith. All of a sudden, oh, you mean it was stone and not wood? You know, but they start to, you know, I, well, might as well go home, you know. But we start to realize that there could be just little details that can help us just to know a little bit better, you know. Somebody decided we'd celebrate his birthday on December 25th. All right, I'm going to try that with, with the next person I date, and I'm going to tell him, you know what, I know your birthday September 4th, but June 10th would be much cooler. It's warm, we can hang out at the beach. <laughs> you know, we, we can do these little things, because what I think what ends up happening is we attempt to make God fit into our world rather than trying to fit us into his, by trying to get to know him. And why some of these things can be affected is there are some amazing things that exist that we don't know exist that are proofs and evidences of the Bible, evidences of the New Testament, evidences of the different things that go on. We can not realize. Um, one of the big anniversaries, a, a correlation that happens with the Bible that people don't realize it happens, um, when they announced uh, the deal for the nuclear deal with Iran um, a week ago, that was on a very important day. That is, in Israel, the story played much different. Forgetting the political angle of it, the, what, the, how the story played there was, it was on the anniversary of an event they're much more familiar with and another one we're more familiar with. On that date a couple weeks ago was the day that Haman, in the book of Esther, paid 10,000 pieces of silver to the king of Persia for the right to kill Israel. That's also the same anniversary date of an event we know when Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver for Jesus. You'll start to notice a lot of these things line up where the Old and New Testament, if you were to lay them on top of each other, map out almost perfectly that all of these events were early prophecies of what was to come. 
that the enemy would come and seek to destroy. Some of you have heard me talk about it before. Haman, from the book of Esther, never should have existed. He's an Agagite. The Agagites are the descendants of King Agag. And who's King Agag? King Agag is the king that Saul was commanded to kill. So Saul's sin generations earlier nearly wiped out all of God's people. Because King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And as a reminder to that, to this day, generally enemies in Israel are referred to either as Haman or Amalekite. So you'll hear that word Haman thrown around quite a bit. In fact, uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu did it when he spoke before Congress not too long ago. But in addition to that, some of the evidences that we can have of Israel can be quite astounding. How do we have proof of the Bible? And as we work to some of these things in the New Testament, what goes on is here's Mount Gilboa is a very famous mountain in Israel. It's not that tall. It's the size of a foothill, really. What, what they call a mountain, we'd call a foothill. But Mount Gilboa is incredibly important. In this picture, this wide shot, it could be a little hard to tell, but you see the fields, all this very, this is a very fertile ground. 80% of the wheat for all of uh, Europe and the corn come from this valley. It is some of the most fertile farmland in the Middle East. But if you look on the mountain there on the side, you can see there's trees growing on the top. And there's kind of a bald face right there. So you can get a better look of it there, how nothing is growing on the side of that mountain. Why is that significant? They brought the top experts in the world. How do we make something grow there? Israel is incredibly into green technology. We have, they have to use every inch of their resources. How can we make something grow? Let's find out why things won't grow there from a scientific reason. And so we can figure out and start growing. Because we can grow in all this valley, all around the hill. But here's this, you know, here's this patch of bald land that we're not able to use. Talk to experts in the world say there's no reason something shouldn't grow there. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure out how to make something grow. A simple look at the scriptures, though, will give you the answer to this. Mount Gilboa is where King Saul and Jonathan fell in battle. King David's response was to curse the side of the mountain and say nothing will ever grow here ever again. And to this day, nothing grows. The proof of God is all around us. Our faith is in our base, and yes, our faith, and we can talk about we have to have faith, but there are evidences of our faith all around us that we don't know about. It's amazing to see what God can do. Here's another one. In Genesis 14, 14, there's a city reference as the city of Dan, and that's where Abraham goes to rescue Lot with his 300-plus trained men. There's a problem with that. The Bible is wrong. The translators are wrong. The city of Dan did not exist yet. So why did they call it the city of Dan? Because the city, because the Canaanite city, according to the scriptures originally, didn't, they never had evidence that it ever existed. So in Jesus' time, they referred to it as the city of Dan, which was nearby, but wasn't where Abraham, wasn't where the Bible said this city was supposed to be. So they figured, it's kind of close, might be off. It must be the city of Dan. So in Jesus' day, people are going around saying, see, the Bible is wrong. This city doesn't even exist. It's a, this story is a fairy tale. This never happened. And they let it go. And then that argument started coming back about 15, 20 years ago when people were looking to disprove the Bible. This is one of the stories they went to. They said, 
God didn't exist. The Bible's a bunch of made-up myths and fairy tales. Even in Jesus' day, they didn't believe this city existed. And then what happened about 15 years ago is they were, had time around the city of Dan for one more dig before the, before the winter came. And they asked him, well, where should we dig? So, I don't know, over there. They go, they start digging. This is what they discover. This is an ancient Canaanite gate, 7,000 years old, exactly where the Bible said the city was to exist. The only reason this survived the 7,000 years, because normally that archway, that doorway should have collapsed. The city had outgrown it, and so they had sealed it in and opened up a new gate on the other side. So since it was filled in, it was completely preserved for these thousands of years for us in our generation to be able to discover the truth and another evidence of God's word. So we can see around us while our faith is absolutely preeminent. We don't have to blindly walk and not know what the scriptures are, whether the scripture is true or not. We continue to find more and more and more and more and more of these things. And the more that we can get to know God, the more that we can get to fall in love with God, the more that we can see about his very nature of God, it can help us. Because we like to find, we like to find the little bits that will help us, and it's a great start. Who doesn't love to read Jeremiah 29.11? I know the plans I have for you to prosper you, to not harm you. Okay, let's go read that scripture in context. Jeremiah 29.11 is a promise to the Babylonian exiles. We can learn about the nature of God, but what do we learn about it? We can look at this context of the scripture that we love so much, and we focus on the positive part. That's what I want. I, I, I love that. That prosper thing sounds good. Let me ignore Jeremiah 29 through 31, which describes how God would have to punish his people, nearly destroy them for their sin and their wickedness, and that he would only do it because he would only bring them back and restore them because of his glory, not because of what they did. And when you look at Jeremiah 29 11, I don't know if many people, they waited 150 years to see that prophecy fulfilled. So the generation that was told that never even saw it. It was their grandkids and great-grandkids that actually fulfilled that promise. Now, to say, because we don't look now, to sit there and say, all right, well, that's not a promise for us, still doesn't mean we don't get to learn about the nature of God. God wants us to prosper. God wants to love us. But as we get into the deeper understanding, as we go deeper into the Scripture, we can learn about the character of God and not just want to go, all right, promises are awesome, but I want to know the character. What do I learn about the character in there? I learn that he's faithful. I learn that he, wants, he doesn't want to have to harm me, that he will relent even in, if, if I do, no matter how bad I blow it, he'll always still fulfill his word so I can trust him, even if it takes 150 years. To me, when we start to look at relationships and we start to look at it, we can either decide to love someone like a child or like an adult. And they're very different. There's a lot of great aspects of children. They're amazing to watch and to run around and to kind of vicariously live through them sometimes and to remember the joy and the simplicity and pleasures of life they have. But 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13, gives us a very interesting take on this. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. But now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. In this context of this scripture, when you read the, all of the Corinthian letter at, at a more broader um, stroke, it's what it look like. When he talks about it, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. When I became a man, I put away these childish things. Think about it. When you were a child, when I was a kid, how did I love? I did anything I could to get attention. Love was about me. I wanted to feel safe. I wanted to feel secure. These are all valid emotions, but it was very one-sided. I loved you because I needed you. And that's a great place to start. I, I need that. We need God. So when we're a child, when we're, we're new to the faith, we're learning to depend and trust and give up control like Lindsay talked about last night. So we're learning all of these different things to do it. But ultimately the goal, as you're seeing the middle part in verse 12, it's to be fully known and to fully know the living God. How much time do we invest in knowing the living God? How much time do we invest in continuing to get to know him? We hear something, and if it sounds great, and one of the places you hear this a lot now, Facebook memes have ruined biblical accuracy. Facebook memes, we see it. There's a name that we recognize that's associated with it, a minister we like, a preacher, a famous person, whomever it is, I'll leave the guilty alone. <laughs> but you see these memes, and it sounds good. It sounds biblical. And so that we repost it. And then all our friends repost it. Did we actually go back and see if that's actually in the Bible? Did we actually go back and see how it is? Because usually as a child, we express our needs. We express how we want to be loved. You're not loving me right. You're not loving me the way I want to be loved. As an adult, as you get there, you start to learn what is it? Love's much more about sacrifice. Love's about getting to know the other person. About what do they need? Who are they? How do I meet their needs? Do we focus on meeting God's needs? God created us for a reason. His desire to have a relationship with us. So when we do this and we go through these things and, we, and you go out there, it, it's, it's, it always, it's always, I always like to put it back in that romantic relationship a, a concept of, you know, if I was dating or married to someone and I changed their name, changed their birthday, only studied out the parts of their aspect of their character that affected me, will you promise this? I'm going to remember that. I remember all the promises you made at your vows because that helps me. But I'm not going to focus on my part in it. I'm not going to study to try to get to know the true nature, to know who you are, so that I can have a more intimate, deeper, connected relationship with God. Well, what are some of these? Because again, what I tell you is what it does is it will deepen your faith if you know who your God is. One, that he's living and active, that our God is real. We have evidence of that. There's a like thing I told you earlier that the Bible can kind of mirror itself. The Old Testament and the New Testament have a lot of mirroring. And here's a few of them. There are tons of them I could have chosen. But if you start to look at it, Old Testament events that occurred. During the Exodus, we just celebrated, you know, the uh, turning point. We had a Passover Seder. A lot of people from uh, some of the different ministries came in, over 150 people to celebrate it. That correlates with the Last Supper. So when the plague of the firstborn went through Egypt, is the same date in history Jesus was crucified on the cross. God's firstborn died on the same day. He left the Jews, the Israelites, sin unpunished for a later date. Three days later, 
You have the parting of the Red Sea. It's the same day Jesus rose from the dead. You start to see how mirrored and how perfect God's plan is. How many thousands of years he waited to fulfill it. Shavuot is when Exodus, when God, when God gave the law to Moses. And what happened? He comes down the first time and they're worshiping Baal. He calls Aaron and his men to his side. They go through the camp and they kill about 3,000 men. Same date in history. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter calls all the men together. He comes to the mountaintop. And what does he do? He baptizes 3,000 men on that same day. There's a mirrored correlation with these relationships. Repentance, forgiveness, love, discipline. All these things go back and forth as we start to look at the Bible. And the one I shared with you earlier about Haman and Judas sharing the same date. There's so many more of these. These are some of the more obvious ones that we can pull off the top of the Scriptures. But there's so much more as you get to know God. There's so much more as you get to know Jesus. One of my favorite ones is is something that's perpetuated throughout our own ministries in our own church. Not necessarily wrong because it's good we like to correlate it, but it's the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the head rabbi of Jerusalem. And we all talk about it in our studies. We talk about it sometimes and we, we, you know, we do the best we can. We talk about the scriptures. We, we parse it accurately. But then we, sometimes where we get in trouble is we start to want to, we put ourselves again, we want to make God like us. So we start to picture, well, why did Nicodemus do, well, why did he go at night? He was scared. Okay. Why else would he gone at night? He's there all, Jesus is there all day. Why didn't he go to him in the day? Why didn't he go to him in public? Why didn't he go to him at night? Let me offer you this a possibility. My brother, when he was going through his rabbinical training to become a rabbi, anywhere in the world he was, another rabbi or the rabbi's wife that recognized him could question him. And for those three years, he had to be able to answer any question they asked. And until he could accurately, he was not ordained as a rabbi. Nicodemus is the head rabbi of Jerusalem. It's Passover week. He's got 125,000 lambs to bless. He's got his biggest donors in the world coming in that week. Got to work the room. Got to remember the ones that are paying your salary. He's got the people coming into the temple. This is the head rabbi of Jerusalem. This is one of the most, outside of the high priest, this is one of the two or three best positions there is in all of Israel. So he's working all day. When do you go to midweek? At night. Why? Because you work during the day. So why did he possibly go to Jesus at night? Because he worked all day. It, we sometimes try to insinuate that he, that he snuck in. Well, if he snuck in, how did it make it into the Bible? Somebody saw it. And in Jewish cultural tradition, <laughs> in cultural tradition, it's, it's being recorded. What would have happened is these two rabbis, Yeshua and Nicodemus, would have been paired off. Jesus would have had his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples. Nicodemus would have had his 12 disciples. All rabbis had 12 disciples. One for each tribe. Spread the word throughout the whole country. It was representative. They didn't literally have to be from each tribe, but it was a representative number. So why? So Nicodemus is here. So the, Peter's version of Peter would have been standing next to him, the oldest. The youngest would have been standing next to John and all the way in between. They would have paired off with each other and they would have watched this interaction between their rabbis. They would have watched this interaction. 
Another thing lesson you'll learn from when my brother was going through his rabbinical training, he discovered a trick. A rabbi will never ask a question he does not know the answer to. He won't. He doesn't want to look stupid. He's here to test him. So when he asked about being born of water, about being born again, he already knew the answer. Well, if he knew the answer, what is, can we take away from that scripture? What one of the things we take away from that scripture is? The head rabbi in Jerusalem walked away saying, this man is a valid and true rabbi of the faith. This is a man who says what he says he is. He vouched for him. He gave him credibility that he could not have had anywhere else. It's a beginning of revealing. of It's a testing of Jesus who tests out and comes out, and he is who he says he is. Some of the other things, just so you guys know, as we do, and I talk about it jokingly about the name thing, calling your wife by a different name, you know. Um, the Bible has a lot of things that are different. Uh, Jesus' name's Yeshua. Anyone know what Yeshua actually means? It actually means salvation. His name was salvation. And there were times you read in the scripture where at the mere mention of his name they get upset. Here's a dude walking around with name of salvation. Mary was no wallflower. Why were they from Nazareth? Nazareth, like I said, is because rock is their biggest product, is on top of a mountain. It was the one city the Romans couldn't control. So all of the rebels, all of the people that wanted to fight Rome, all of the people that were dissatisfied with all of the um, horrible things going on inside the temple were in Nazareth. So Mary and Joseph were rebels. That's why they weren't where they back in Bethlehem where they were supposed to be, where their family naturally would have been. They were part of the movement of people that were challenging. You know, they're from a line of priests. They should have been in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, somewhere serving God. But they felt they needed to be where they were because they knew who he was. Mary, name is actually Miriam. So every time you read Mary in the New Testament, the name is actually Miriam. One of my favorite of these because a very large denomination has, has made it this. Mary Magdalene, what was her profession? Prostitute. Do you know where that comes from? There's another interaction where Jesus interacts with a prostitute. And a very famous theologian said, see that interaction? That's Mary because all the prostitutes are from the city she's from. That's the link. That's all the evidence there is. So Mary Magdalene's been getting called a prostitute for thousands of years and probably wasn't. Mary Magdalene's name is actually Miriam from Migdal. Magdalene should be from Migdal, the city she's from. It's just off the Sea of Galilee between Tiberias and Jesus' adopted hometown of Capernaum. So you see it. We have another one. We hear talk oftentimes, oh, you know, remember when Saul's name got changed to Paul? Was it really changed? Or was that, as the Bible says, his Roman citizenship name? So in Rome, he was known as Paul. To the Jews, he was known as Rav Shaul, Rabbi Saul. Peter, Kepha in Hebrew. Um, the last one, James, is probably the most notorious one uh, as far as where it comes from. Again, at the end of the day, is this a salvation issue? No. I don't want you to think, by no means, am I trying to go, man, the church need to repent. No. <laughs> Um, what I want you to know is, but James' name actually should be Jacob or Yaakov. Why James? 
Because when they were translating the Bible into English, they needed money. Who had money? King James. So to honor the king, they said, well, who's, where should we put his name? We're transliterating all these other names. What would be a good one? They said, you know what? Jesus had a brother named Yaakov. Let's make it, let's put the king close to the Messiah and let's call him James. And that's where that came from. It's oftentimes there. You can start to notice when you peel back layers of the Bible, you start to see things and how, and how there is. And in a minute, I'll give you my theory on why it's happened. Again, just a theory. But you start to notice, like in the New Testament, we start to see the word church prop up. You see the word church and you see the word synagogue. Interesting to note, the word synagogue is only in negative context. Church is in positive context. The word church is actually a pagan term that didn't come about for another three, 400 years. The disciples still went to the synagogue. It wasn't until 70 AD with the Barkova revolt when they said, Rabbi Barkova is the Messiah. They said, we cannot be a part of that. You're going to worship a different Messiah? We out. And that's when they officially, there was an official split between the traditional Jewish um, synagogues and when they actually started Christian synagogues or later churches. More times than not, you just hear them called congregations. It's just a generic term. But again, this just gives us more insight to our founding fathers, some of our early reformers, people that were great people, but also grew up in very different times. And so we've got to do, we can go back and look at the scriptures and to do it. And one, one thing I want to do, though, to reassure you that why I think this has been allowed to occur is there a scripture in Isaiah that talks about God has hidden his face from the Jews. See, you as most of you in here, all right, how many people have Jewish cultural background are there in here? About, <laughs> there's about five or six in here. There's a couple hundred of you that are Gentile. Do you really care whether Jesus fulfilled the law or not in your day-to-day life? You like, Intellectually, yes, I want to know he's the Messiah. But did you need that to be saved? No, your faith brought it to you. You saw God and the evidence of him working in your life. So I personally believe, my personal hope and, and belief is that as, we, as God continues to reveal these things to us through the archaeology of today, the new discoveries being made every day, that this is his way of re-revealing himself and reintroducing himself as a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. So I believe we've been able to have salvation. We're able to have the great thing. And, it, and it's remarkable how accurate and how um, secure our scriptures are. Like, don't have fear. Like, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are up in downtown L.A. right now, or at least a few of them. Um, I got a chance to go look at some of them uh, a week ago. I would encourage you, they're there till September. I would encourage you to go. They have 20 different uh, parchments um, at the Exhibition Center down near USC. And uh, they rotate them ten at a time. And it's quite moving experience. And the reason I bring up this, why I bring up the Dead Sea Scrolls is they actually validate the accuracy of the Bible for us. People often want to argue over, and Isaiah's the most fundamental book as far as who the Messiah is and who he was going to be. And you hear people, the Bible's not accurate, written by a bunch of men, changed all the time, there's all these thousands of transcripts, there's all these different errors, there's all this different stuff, blah, 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 blah. Okay, the book of Isaiah that you read that is in your Bible was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Copper Scroll is, the, is a, a complete intact version from anywhere from 250 to 500 B.C. before Jesus. 
And the difference between that Isaiah and the one that you read now, 2,500 years later, are two differences. A spelling difference of the same word where the word has the same meaning no matter which way you spell it. So we read word for word the same book of Isaiah that Malachi, Jesus, Paul, you know, all that the apostles had. The, the one they had in Jesus' day, word for word, is the one we have today. They've actually, biblical experts have started to fight back and have actually said, there is more proof of the accuracy of the Bible than William Shakespeare wrote his own plays. And those of you who never read that controversy, there actually is a controversy about some of those plays and who wrote them. But, um, you know, but we have so much evidence and proof. And again, why I think this is important, it gives us a chance to know our God. It gives us a chance to know him and who he is and have a deeper relationship with him, the better we get to know him. And for me, this has started to ring especially true as uh, later this year, um, I don't know, there's been a lot of amazing things going on in the Middle East with the church. Um, anybody who wants to know about, talk to some of the people from the Middle East that, that have been there, and they, they, there's some amazing stories going on. Um, that, but unfortunately, there's one country in particular that's really struggling, and that's Israel. Uh, Israel within our church right now is not part of a world sector, um, really hasn't been. Uh, it has no sponsoring church. Uh, the, the, the congregation in Jerusalem disbanded a number of years ago. Um, Tel Aviv um, got a message last night, I believe now, is 16 disciples. They've had one baptism in two years. They're mostly Russian immigrants that were ba- baptized in um, Moscow or St. Petersburg and have come down. Um, they're very noble. They've, they've survived. Tel Aviv is a crazy city. So you guys get a sense of idea. And um, those of you who've ever been on staff or on staff have wondered how much people on staff might make in other countries. The brother who leads the church in Tel Aviv lives on 2,000 shekels a month. 2,000 shekels is less than $500 on the current market right now. You go, well, maybe they're, you know, it's a poor country. Does Tel Aviv not have a lot of money? Maybe that's not bad for there. Tel Aviv is the equivalent price-wise of Manhattan, New York. Apartments can go for $5 million. And yet the disciples there are living on pittance. They have very little, but they're very faithful. They've had a very difficult time. One of the things that uh, has come up, though, is an opportunity uh, for some of us that are from a Jewish background that that have it. And so um, actually later this year, um, I get the honor of being the first person to go, um, but there will be others coming behind me and any of you who feel moved. Hey, we'd love to have you. We're going to be replanting the church in Jerusalem. Um, we're doing it a little different than what you guys are used to. You won't see 15 people on stage, and the, we wish them well, and they get all those, with that, the sponsoring of the church and all the different things that come with that. Uh, God has a different way that he uh, wants to be able to do it. And so we're going very much on our own, and we're going as individuals that will then link up, um, not an underground church in the sense that you think of China as an underground church, but more in the sense of going underground just not to raise a lot of, commotion and we're just going because God has moved on on a group of us our hearts to be able to go we are coordinating with all of the past leaders from Jerusalem and Tel Aviv coordinating with all of the world sector leaders uh, there was a meeting that just happened in London two days ago with the Flemings um, so there is a lot of coordination going on with the church but this planting is actually going on alongside of the church I said not outside of the church but alongside it that we're going we're not going to officially be the Jerusalem Church of Christ 
Um, one of the names being kicked around is actually Adat Hashem, which just means uh, house of the Lord. And um, it's going to be an amazing time. We all have an opportunity to get to know God better in our own way. You know, and in my case, I get to go and I'm going to get to spend some time there um, for whoever knows how long, open-ended, whether it's six months, two years, I get kicked out when I get off the plane, whatever happens, or I'm there for 30 years. What is great about that, though, is the opportunity to just get to know God in a different way. And we all can do that, though, in our own lives. One of the great things about this church has been the sacrifice people have made for others. People didn't get to go to these other countries. L.A. doesn't get planted without Boston. Chicago, Atlanta and Chicago and all these different links of all these cities. Um, uh, some of you in this room probably helped with Arizona a couple years ago. You know, the, the, there's always that need to go and to do it. And uh, usually we're going to fall into one of those categories of um, either, you know, go and grow or stay and pay, as uh, Jake Jensen used to say when I was in Orange County. <laughs> and uh, back then we used to pay a lot. Um, but, but uh, you know, it's one of those things that we get an opportunity to do. And the reason I share that with you is, is twofold. One, um, for those that want to be friends of Israel, meaning, i.e., sponsors, we're always looking. Um, but those, of, or whether you just want to pray or be a part of it or be aware of what's going on, um, we do have uh, the Bible revealed is kind of the initial uh, thing that goes on. Um, and it's going to kind of be the um, umbrella initially. Uh, since it's, it's kind of set up already um, to do some things. And we're going to kind of keep people updated, but we're going to be a little bit discreet. We're going to ask that a lot of this stuff doesn't end up on Facebook. Um, you know, personally, out in the open, it's fine. We just like to keep a, a small imprint on social media. But when you go through your lives, is, is find a way to connect to God in a new way. Find a way to build a deeper relationship with him than you had this morning when you woke up. Find a way to renew it. Start to feel and look at it as your individual's part, because this is the beginning part of building a community. Your individual relationship with God is most important. When you connect to the living God and know who the living God is, when you see all these miracles of Mount Geboa or Jerusalem, why they fight so hard for the city of Jerusalem, because that's where the Spirit of God lived. They've been fighting a war for thousands of years over a hill because the Spirit of God lived in it, the same Spirit that lives inside of you. That same Spirit... When they marched around Jericho, when, they, when God did the plagues in Egypt, that same God, that same spirit is inside of you. Take that time to get to know that God. Take that time to understand who he is. Take that time to embrace just everything that you can get, your, your, every bit, every morsel, every fiber. When you first fall in love with someone, when you're young and you fall, that love is young, you want to know everything about them. You want to identify them. Sometimes we get complacent as we grow older and we don't invest that same amount of time into knowing who, they, who those people we love are. But let's not do that with the living God. Let's, it, it will help our faith. It will help you remain strong. It will help you remain faithful. It will help you always quite not question, am I wasting my time? Does he even exist? This God is real and there's evidence of him, not just in the archaeology of the history, but in your lives. And so I would just encourage you, as we go throughout the rest of this day, to reflect on your baptism, to reflect on those things, to what God has brought you from, what he saved you from. What was your exodus? And not once you have that, focus on where he's taking you. You haven't received the promise yet. Heaven's still coming. 
Salvation is, without that, nothing else matters. But we still got heaven. So really, I just encourage you, just as you go throughout your day, just to have conversations with each other, connect with each other in unique ways, and to share these stories of God, of love, of happiness. Tomorrow, we're going to look at um, uh, more of a community thing and our responsibility as a nation and some different aspects. And there's some very, we're going to look at Ezekiel 37 tomorrow, which is a very unique prophecy. And there's some amazing things that have happened in the last 60 years regarding that scripture. Um, that it will be amazing when you see the pictures and the, and the scriptures come together, when you see the visuals. But as you go throughout your day, celebrate your God. Celebrate that he's alive. Celebrate with joy. The cross is not to be a sobering, boring, bummy time. The cross is what saved you. The cross was something he chose to save you. Let us do everything we can to have a relationship with him. Thank you for coming. You've just listened to audio from the Catalyst Conference. For more information about Catalyst, please visit catalystretreat.com.